Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast is the first of our 2014 summer-fall season and features Lev Grossman at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. Lev Grossman is the author of the best-selling Magicians Trilogy, lauded by the Washington Post as a masterful, fresh, and compelling addition to the corpus of coming-of-age fantasy literature popularized by Harry Potter. The much-anticipated third and final installment, The Magician's Land, debuted August 5th, and the full series is already being adapted as a television drama by Universal on the Sci-Fi Channel. Grossman is also the author of two standalone novels, Warp and Codex, and he is currently lead book critic and technology writer for Time Magazine. His nonfiction work has appeared in Entertainment Weekly, The Wall Street Journal, and Wired. He is also a regular guest on NPR. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. It's not always nice for me to get to come uh, to the Twin Cities. Uh, I have a little bit of a special feeling about them uh, because it's, uh, my dad grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, my dad died earlier this summer. Uh, even though I, I actually haven't spent that much time here, we didn't come here that often. My dad talked about Minneapolis incessantly. <laughs> so growing up, it was a, it was a, a kind of um, legendary, uh, it, had, it had a little bit of a fantastical feel to it. It was a little bit like Narnia. <laughs> Only, I guess, colder and with more lakes. <laughs> As I said, my dad came from here. My, my dad's whole side of the family is from here. Uh, his father operated, owned a, a Chevrolet dealership on, I believe, East Lake. Is that right? And his family for having once, if, if, if the legend is true, punched out the chief of police. <laughs> <laughs> he had a more muscular physique. Uh, I don't know, I, didn't, I, I did fail to inherit it, I don't know why. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the magician's uh, books and the magician's land in particular. I started writing The Magicians almost exactly 10 years ago. Uh, I still have the original file somewhere buried on my hard drive, and the date of creation is June 19th, 2004. And I started writing it at a difficult period of my life. I felt very stuck. Um, in a lo- I, I felt stuck personally. I felt stuck professionally. Uh, I, it, was a very, it, was a, it was sort of a lost, wandering in the woods kind of uh, a moment in my life, as it was for a lot of people. We were, we were mired deeply in the... Um, slough of despond in between Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix and Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. It was a long, long time between those two books. Uh, And I think a lot of us hit bottom during that period. Uh, I know that I did. And I started thinking a lot about um, 
I, mean, I was 35 at that point, uh, but I was very invested in the Harry Potter books. Uh, I had always read fantasy, starting uh, most of all with the Narnia books. Uh, I think The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the book. That was the novel that taught me what novels were for, uh, which is to get lost in. And I always feel as though every book, every novel I've read since then has been kind of a... Uh, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was sort of the type uh, for all my novel reading experiences and kind of the ideal that sort of sat behind them. Uh, and I was thinking about that. And I was thinking on the one hand how closely, how close I felt to these characters, uh, characters like the Pevensies or uh, Lyra in the Philip Pullman books, um, or the young King Arthur in, in The Once and Future King, or, or Harry Potter. Uh, but I also was very conscious of how different my life was from theirs and how little of what I was dealing with uh, at the age of 35 had been covered in the Chronicles of Narnia. Despite my repeated readings of them, there is a lot that those books don't cover, as great as they are. And I started thinking about what it would be like to write a story like that. A story uh, about somebody who discovers that they had power they didn't know they had, uh, who, f who finds their way into a, a secret world that nobody else knows about, but to write it for adults and to write it about the kinds of um, the kinds of issues and, and, and challenges that I was dealing with, uh, you know, just but t tell that story sort of through the lens of, of, of fantasy. So uh, I started writing, but I, I you know, immediately uh, things were starting coming out differently from, from Harry Potter. Even though I was writing the story, I wanted to write the story of the education of a magician, partly because of Harry Potter and partly because of The Wizard of Earthsea, which is another of my favorite books. You know, my wizard, he was coming out, he sort of came out differently. He was a little bit older than Harry Potter. He was American. Uh, he didn't speak uh, in that very crisp and precise way that English fantasy heroes speak. He, called, he and his friends called each other dude, which looked very odd in the context of a fantasy novel, but I sort of I kept on with it. I, uh, I was determined that they should talk like Americans. Uh, I gave him some things that Harry uh, didn't have, like a, a sort of low-level drinking problem, uh, <laughs> an untreated mood disorder, and then I kind of, I took away some things that Harry had. I, I didn't want my magician to have a Dumbledore in his life. I didn't want him to have a Gandalf. I didn't want him to have a kind of avuncular advisor figure who would help him find the path again when he got, when he got lost. I didn't, you know, you know uh, um, in The Lord of the Rings, they've always got Gandalf there. Things get very bad. He just reminds them, you've got this ring. Just put it in that volcano. That's all you've got to do. Everything's going to be fine. It's really hard to get from here to there, but you know where you're going. I felt like I didn't even know where I was going, and I wanted my magician to feel lost in that same way. And what ended up coming out was a very different kind of story than those other stories. Much, it was much less about, um, he didn't, you know, there wasn't sort of a, a, there wasn't really a Voldemort character in these books either. There wasn't a Sauron, there wasn't a White Witch. Uh, you know, those figures, um, you know, it's a convention of fantasy. You have a kind of icon of ultimate evil who's present in the landscape and he causes all kinds of trouble. Uh, but in a funny way, he kind of has a useful organizing influence over the world because uh, generally speaking, with some very notable uh, exceptions, uh, you know, people tend to know which side they're on and you know who you're supposed to point your wand at uh, and try to defeat. There wasn't really anybody like that in the, um, in, in the magician's books. And as a result, the story became much less about using magic to defeat evil and just trying to figure out what magic is for. And they spend a lot of time blundering around trying to do that. And then in The Magician's Land, The Magician's Land is as close as I'm going to get to an answer to that question.
I'm going to read you a little bit from it. I'm going to read a passage from the middle of The Magician's Land. It's always hard to figure out what bit of your novel is going to work uh, read aloud. Uh, and I've settled on this bit, which usually you, you read the beginning, but the beginning doesn't have any jokes in it. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to read something that had a little bit of humor in it. So we're, we're in the middle of the book here, and we're actually not dealing with Quentin, who is uh, the focus of a lot of the story. Uh, we're dealing with his friends, Elliot and Janet. Elliot and Janet uh, have been promoted in this book to point of view characters, which they never were before. So we're in Elliot's head now. Which is a, it's an unsavory place where we've never been before. <laughs> Elliot and Janet have heard a nasty room. Elliot and Janet are in Fillory. Uh, they sort of are ruling it. Um, just like the Pevensies ruled uh, Narnia um, when they became kings and queens. They've heard a rumor that Fillory might be dying. This is a thing that happens a lot to fancy lands. Middle Earth is always, you know, the elves are always fading away to the west or whatever. You know, Narnia eventually dies. You know, all these, all these fantasy lands, they have a very lost quality, a very perishable quality to them. So I thought maybe Fillory ought to be in decline as well. And uh, Elliot and Janet have not resigned themselves to Fillory passing away. Uh, so they're kind of, they've, they've left Castle, Castle Whitespire and they're kind of ranging around the landscape. And they're looking and they're trying to figure out uh, what's going on. And they've become almost like a pair of like hard-boiled detectives. They, they just go walk around and they talk to people and they question people because they want to know what's going on. Is Fillory dying? And if so, is there anything they can do about it? And they have come to a large swamp and they're in the middle of the swamp and there's sort of a lake in the middle of the swamp and they're out on a pier over the lake and Janet appears to, there appears to be somebody that Janet wants to talk to there, um, although she hasn't told Elliot who it is. The other thing about it is this is jellyfish drifting around, but they're not like jellyfish that live in the water, they're jellyfish that float around in the air. Um, and they're sort of pink and translucent and their tentacles are dangling down and you can't touch them because they're very venomous. It's just sort of sinister. They play no role in the plot at all. They just are sort of, <laughs> they're there for atmosphere. They eat birds and things like that. All right, so I'm gonna read this bit. While I read, we're gonna have, uh, uh, after I do the reading, we're gonna have some Q&A. Um, so it is incumbent upon you to supply me with cues so we can have a Q&A. Uh, so if it, just keep that in the back of your mind if anything comes up. They waited, and something jumped in the stillness, a frog or a fish. And Elliot turned his head too slowly to catch it. When he, when he turned back, the water wasn't still anymore. The first sign of it was a broad, smooth bow wave that rushed silently toward them, wetting the stilts halfway up. Then a massive, ridged, warty olive shell broke the surface, 50 feet across, like a submarine breaching. It was a turtle, a snapping turtle by its beak, which was hooked like a falcon's. Christ, the thing was a leviathan. Incidentally, that was my nickname in uh, intramural basketball, leviathan. <laughs> also levitation, because of my vertical rise. They were being ironic. <sighs> no wonder nothing lived here. The jellyfish ate the birds out of the air, and this thing must scour the water of anything with more than two cells to rub together. Huge bubbles of methane were surfacing around it, released from the mud it must have been buried in. The smell was indescribable. Or actually, no, it wasn't indescribable. It smelled like shit. Who calls the prince of the mud? The snapping turtle spoke slowly. Its voice was raspy and old chain smokers. Its head was blunt and blocky, its piggy eyes were set deep in nests of horny skin which made it look angry. 
which Eliot was going to assume that it was until it proved otherwise. Oh, it said, you. Yeah, me, said Janet. Poo, you smell. The smell of life. The smell of farts. I've got a question for you. <laughs> what else do you have for me? I cannot eat questions. The hunting has been poor. Its huge face was all hide and beak. Its neck was as thick as its head. Oh, I don't know. Sometimes Elliot wondered if Janet were a little bit sociopathic. How else could she possibly sound bored and casual in this situation? Elliot knew she had feelings. She, she just kept them in different places for most people. We've got a couple of horses. Answer my question and we'll talk. Elliot kept his face blank. She had to be bluffing. No way was Janet giving this thing the horses. I'm High King Elliot, he said. He owns this shithole, Janet said. <laughs> I am Prince, Prince of the Mud. Yeah, we know which Elliot owns. You're a giant turtle. Your kingdom may be wide, but it is spread thin. Mine runs deep. It turned its head slowly from side to side, studying them with first one matte-looking eye and then the other. A jellyfish drifted past its tentacles, limply brushing the turtle's forehead, but the leviathan didn't appear to notice. Ember says Fillory is dying, Elliot said. What do you think? Is it true? Death, life. A fish dies, a billion mites eat it and live. In the swamp, there's no difference. There is to the fish, Janet said. You're a shitty philosopher, so don't try. Is Fillory dying? <laughs> if turtles had shoulders, it would have shrugged. Yes, then, Fillory's dying. Give me horses. Wait, are you serious? Janet was pissed off now. She looked like she hadn't believed it up until that moment. It's really ending. Well, can we stop it? You cannot. We can't, Elliot said, but maybe there's somebody who could. I cannot say. Ask the queen. I'm the queen, Janet said. I'm a queen. I'm the main queen. I'm asking you. The queen of the dwarves in the barrens. Enough. Give me horses or let me be. The turtle began, I'm really working on my turtle voice, my giant turtle voice. At the end, by the end, this is the beginning of the tour. By the end of the tour, it's going to be just like, you're going to be able to, I'm going to inhabit the role. <laughs> the turtle began to sink, slowly withdrawing its head under the shelf of its shell, barely disturbing the black water till its chin rested on the surface. I don't know any dwarf queens, Janet said. You know any dwarf queens, Elliot? Heck no, Janet, because there aren't any female dwarfs. They don't exist. She doesn't exist, Janet said to the turtle. Try again. Listen closer. The snapping turtle snapped. Its head shot out to maximum extension. Elliot would not have believed that anything that big could move that fast. It was like a Mack truck coming straight at them. As it bit, it turned its head on one side to take them both in one movement. Elliot reacted fast. His reaction was to crouch down and cover his head with his arms. <laughs> From the relative safety of this position, he felt the day grow colder around them. And he heard a crackle, which at first he took for the pier splintering in the turtle's jaws. But the end didn't come. You dare, Janet said. Her voice was loud now. It made the boards vibrate sympathetically under his feet. He looked up at her. She'd gone airborne, floating two feet above the pier, and her clothes were rhymed with frost. 
She radiated cold, mist sheeted off her skin as it would off dry ice. Her arms were spread wide, and she had an axe in each hand, and each one was now topped with an axe head of clear ice. The turtle was trapped in mid-lunge. She'd stopped it cold. The swamp was frozen solid around it. Janet had called down winter, and the water of the northern marsh was solid ice as far as he could see, cracked and buckled up in waves. The turtle was stuck fast in it. It struggled, its head banging back and forth impotently. Jesus, Elliot said. He stood up out of his defensive crouch. Nice one. You dare, Janet said again, all imperious power. Marvel that you live, prince of shit. <laughs> the turtle didn't seem surprised, just mad. I'll have you. It hissed and it surged and strained. The ice squeaked and groaned and started to split around it. Janet leaned into the casting, however she was doing it. And she froze the swamp harder and tighter. I will freeze your eyes, she said, and shatter them. I will split your shell and pick out the meat. Jesus, where did she get this stuff? <laughs> the turtle strained once more and then was still, like a great ship frozen in Arctic pack ice. It stared at them furiously, its eyes burning with murder. Janet let herself float down to the wooden boards. Fuck you, Janet said. You know better. Next time I'll kill you. <laughs> she spat and the gob froze in midair and slid across the ice. With that, she turned and walked away. Elliot practically fell off the boardwalk getting out of her way. He didn't want to touch those axes. He felt like he should say something too before he went. And so he did. Dick. <laughs> Worm, the turtle rasped back. Its breath smoked in the sudden cold. You'll see. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah, sure, he said. I've heard that before. He trotted off after Janet. She left frost footprints behind her. Thank you. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Lev Grossman and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a gentleman who wonders what a typical day is like for Lev Grossman. My typical day is probably a lot less interesting than we all hope that it really would be. Uh, I work at Time, I'm on staff there, uh, and I do their, their book reviews and also most of their technology writing. Uh, and that, believe it or not, is a 40-hour-a-week job, and uh, what I do is uh, I wake up and I change approximately one million diapers because I have many children. I have three children. It's not that bad. I don't know why I'm complaining. Especially since I'm out on tour and my wife is changing all the diapers. Um, yeah, then I, I go to work. I try to get there by 10 and I have an office there. It's hard to be a writer in the same, same building as children um, because they have no respect at all for the creative process. Uh, it means nothing to them. And so you have to get out of the house, so it's good to have an office somewhere else. And I write, and mostly I work on stuff for time. Sometimes I work on, um, I work on my novels. Uh, it's, a bit, it's a balancing act, getting them both done. I, uh, and sometimes I, I just take time off from time. Uh, usually, while I'm writing a book, I'll take two or three months off um, as, as a sort of leave of absence. 
But, you know, I, I sort of write all day. It's, it's, uh, it, it turns out that that's sort of uh, what I do all the time. Um, and it's hard. I mean, you can, there's a limit to how many hours a day you can write, because you just, you, if you, you, you know, writing is about focus. You know, I break it up uh, uh, with 90-minute stretches of playing games on my iPhone, which is just, it's a technical thing. It's something that writers do when you're a professional that you have to do to keep your mind limber. Uh, but yeah, mostly I write. I write for time, and then I write. Uh, I write novels. It's good. It's, it's helpful to switch back and forth in a funny way. They seem to. The words seem to come out of two separate reservoirs in my brain, and then while I'm emptying one out, the other one is is refilling, uh, and vice versa. It's a. It's a. It's a much more regular, more corporate, less bohemian life than probably. There are probably writers who who, who live eccentric lives. I don't have an eccentric life. I have a very. I have a very dull life. Which I like a lot. As a follow-up to Grossman's working habits, an audience member asks if he writes his novels in his office at Time Magazine or if he has a separate hideaway. Oh no, I write. I, I often write my my uh, my, my novels uh, in my office, um, but that's a secret that we're going to sh all share among people in our in this room because I don't think my bosses are aware uh, that, I, that that I do that. They know the novels come out. They don't. They try not to think about where they come from. <laughs> Nobody tweet that. Sorry? Oh uh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, the jig's up then. It's on the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, I just podcast my way out of a job. Um, honestly, but you know, uh, uh, when you have a magazine, it's a weekly magazine. You have a, your box. You have to fill it with words. If it is full, then you have done your job. Uh, it's more. It's less. It's not so much a time thing as as a, as a, a quantity thing. Our next question is whether or not Grossman writes his first drafts in longhand. I don't. I don't write. I, I, I know some writers do. In fact, I, I have an identical twin brother who is also a writer, and he writes some of his first drafts longhand. Um, and I don't know how he can read them because his handwriting is terrible, <laughs> and mine is equally terrible. And I, I can't do that. It's a terrible. It's the, the 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 age of the keyboard has really ruined me. Um, but people say that it, it's that it's very good. It, you know, you're producing words less fast, so you're kind of more focused and calm as you're producing them. I personally find that uh, on the very rare occasions when I actually have an idea, my, my mind works quicker than I, can, than I can write. I write very slowly. So uh, I just type everything on a computer. There definitely are writers who do that, and it's way more magical, and I sort of envy them. Um, but uh, I can't do it. I can't do it. This next audience member asked Grossman to explain how he came up with many of the characters in his first book, especially the animal gods Umber and Ember. It's a good question. Uh, I mean, I'll t yeah, when I when I wrote the very first draft of the Magicians, this is a, um, this is a this is a, uh, a bit of an admission. Um, I didn't. Uh, there wasn't any fillery in it. I wrote it about Narnia, and I wrote the I wrote uh, the whole book, uh, and I had Aslan in the book. I had Mr. Tumnus in the book. Uh, I had the Wood Between the Worlds in the book. I had a whole sequence set in the Wood Between the Worlds, and I don't know what I thought I was doing. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, 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 I had in mind that I would write this kind of, this sort of Stepardian exercise. You know how he, he wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, and sort of took these things uh, and sort of turned them around and kind of used them to talk, almost to talk back to Shakespeare. And the amazing thing about Shakespeare's works is that it's in the public domain. Uh, and as soon as I consulted with a, a, a copyright lawyer, um, I immediately, they gave me some very creative uh, suggestions for how I could revise. Um, but it was, a good, it, was, it was actually a real blessing because writing about Fillory and creating Fillory really freed me. Uh, I realized that I had been very constrained by 
Lewis's mythology and rolling my own was, it's what made the book work actually. It would have been this sort of very, I think, tight kind of metafictional exercise. I, I remember um, uh, Neil Gaiman has a fantastic story called The Problem of Susan, which is about, it's just so good. You have to, if you don't know it, just go out and Google it. It's amazing. Uh, and it's about the later life of Susan Pevensey, who was the last sort of surviving Pevensey sibling. She had, uh, he had uh, Susan Pevensey in there and Aslan and the White Witch. But, you know, I don't think, people don't sue Neil Gaiman. I don't think they bother. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I tried to point that out to the lawyers. It didn't. Uh, <laughs> cut any ice. Uh, and I, you know, they kind of will, uh, some, most of it I took out sort of root and branch, but some of it I had to be, had to be um, forced to take out. I was really attached to the scene in The Wood Between the Worlds, uh, and I thought maybe because it's not a character that I could keep it in. Uh, and I made this whole case, like Lewis derived it from William Morris, uh, The Wood Beyond the World. There was a whole sort of literary genealogy. Nobody cares. Um, so I took it out as well. Um, and I'm really happy, actually, with the way it came out. The one thing maybe I'm a little bit sad is I took, the, I had a fawn, and I didn't say his name. We don't know if it was Mr. Tumnus or not. It could have been any fawn, anywhere. Uh, and it, but it, he was just a fawn, and uh, I had to take out the fawn, too. Even though Lewis does not own, own he does not own fawns. Um, every, they, they got very skittish about uh, issues of, of uh, intellectual property. And in fact, the publication of The Magicians was delayed six months. Uh, they were about to print it, and they called it off. And we had to sort of do these revisions, and then um, uh, we didn't know for a while if it was going to be able to be published. And now it's, it's out. No one ever, we never heard anything from anybody. Nobody cared. But at the time, we were very skittish about it. And as for Ember, uh, where Ember came from, it's really hard to say. I'm very fond of Ember. And uh, I knew that I wanted to have an animal god, uh, and if possible, a woolly animal god. Because um, I always liked the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where they ride on Aslan towards the end, and they kind of fill their hands with his mane. I thought, I'm, I'm going to have an animal, and it's going to be the kind of animal you can grab onto, because sooner or later, somebody's going to ride this bad boy, <laughs> and they're going to have to hang on. Uh, why he became two, ram, uh, two rams, I don't really know. I mean, I have a, they're twins. I have a twin brother. I'm sure there's some, there's some subconscious link there. Um, but it was a, it's sort of a perverse decision on my part. Also, rams have very odd-looking eyes. You ever looked a ram in the eye? They have these... Um, What's it called? Is it their pupil? Whatever's in the middle of your eye. It's not round. It's sort of peanut-shaped. Um, they look very alien the closer you get up to them. Sort of uncanny. In Harry Potter, they cast magic spells with wands. In Lord of the Rings, it's with staffs. An audience member was curious. How did Grossman settle on the magical rules and mechanics that govern his own world of fillery? Uh, fantasy novelists talk a lot about their magic systems. Everybody sort of creates their own rules um, by which magic works, and none of them are really the same. And I knew, looking at the way Rowling had done it, um, I really liked the way Rowling had done it. But I wanted to uh, tweak it a little bit. I wanted to get rid of, rid of the wands. I think it's possibly possible because I grew up on Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is such a great comic. I think they're actually going to drag him out and make a movie about him. Maybe he'll get, sort of get back into the public eye at that point. Um, but he never had a wand. He always was doing these crazy things with his with his uh, fingers in the, uh, in the, in the drawings. Uh, and I, I, that made a big impression on me. And I sort of wanted magic to work a little bit like that. And I wanted it to be very difficult. I felt worried about magic. I felt it was becoming a little bit uh, domesticated. Um, I, I worried that, that you, you know, it had become this thing that you could, you could teach to children in a school. And I thought, well, maybe we can make it, uh, you know, we can undomesticate it a little bit. We can make it a little bit more wild and feral. Uh, and I thought it should be very difficult. I thought that if magic were easy, 
Everybody would do it. So uh, there ought to be a reason why. It, it, it ought to be, you know, it's a lot of power. It ought to be hard to, it ought to, be hard to come by. It, must, it ought to take a real sort of backbreaking effort. Um, and I drew a lot on an experience I had when I was younger, which was learning to play the cello. I studied the cello pretty seriously for about 10 years. And uh, that experience of, you know, um, when, you, you're, when, you, when, you, when you're playing the cello, you, you know, you're trying to produce this wonderful, clear tone, these accurate pitches. Um, you're trying to create something very pure and ideal, but with your very fallen, twisted flesh. Uh, and your flesh doesn't want to do that. And you're trying to, having to sort of force it into these positions. You're probably getting from this that I wasn't a very good cellist. I really was. I was a pretty, I was a pretty competent cellist. Uh, and I, worked, I, I had no musical feeling whatsoever, but I did, I did work very hard at it. A lot of the memory of, of studying the cello made its way into, into magic. And every once in a while, I do get an email from a cellist saying, are you a cellist too? <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, yes, I am. <laughs> Another audience member mentions that he read The Magician's Land in a book club, and the group was very divided on the characters. Some people loved them, and others found them quite unlikable. The Magician's, it is a great splitter of book clubs. You want to you you just create an epic schism in your book club. Um, this, is, this is the book for you. Uh, it is divisive, and it's quite polarizing. You know, I wanted to, when I was writing The Magicians, you know, I was writing it out of a love of fantasy and also an awareness that, that, that there were aspects of fantasy that didn't ring true to me. And, um, you know, and, and I, you sort of go through and look at the sort of basic conventions of the novel. And one of them is this, you know, this very nice, relatable hero. I wanted to make somebody who felt, I don't know, just, I wanted, I wanted to make sure that he felt very psychologically real. And I felt as though the kind of person who, who would go to a school for magic and who would study magic would maybe not be the most maximally well-adjusted uh, person on the planet. And having been, spent a lot of my life as a poorly adjusted person, I can, I can tell you from my experience that people who are not well-adjusted, people who have demons that, are, that, are, that they have not wrestled to the ground, they can be a real pain in the ass to be around. It's not, a, it's not always a romantic thing. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I've, been a lot of, I've been around a lot of people like that. I have been a person like that. Uh, and uh, you know, I know what it's like to be uh, sort of intellectually overdeveloped, but, but, but emotionally very underdeveloped. Uh, and I thought someone like that, would, would, there would be a lot of that going on at magic school. Um, a lot of people who had fantasies of power because they themselves were very unempowered personally. They maybe were struggling with depression or low self-esteem. Uh, and it came out as magic. It came out as, you know, because they were not personally forceful themselves, and they were kind of a bit pissed off about it. I, feel like, I felt like, you know, a place like Breakfast would be a real psychological menagerie. Um, and some of the people are quite nice, but uh, some, of them, some of them really aren't. And, I, you know, it was, it was, it was a difficult thing, because I'm writing this thing, and I'm like, I, I really want to be true to what I think would be the psychological reality, but I'm shedding people, I'm losing them, you know, because some people are just not going to put up with it. And I, I sort of, I ended up, uh, sort of going that way. It's interesting, response to The Magician's Land has been, it, Magician's Land is a lot less divisive so far than the other books, and I think it's partly because Quentin really grows up in it, um, and he gets to be, a, you know, uh, when you're reading a book, you are locked in a room with those characters for 10 hours or however long. Uh, he's a little bit easier to be in the room with. This audience member explains that Grossman has a lot of influences from well-known fantasy worlds, including Narnia and Harry Potter. She asked if there are any lesser-known fantasy worlds he was inspired by, 
and feels his fans might enjoy now that the Magician series is complete. I mean, in a funny way, I mean, the books are, are you know, semi-explicit about being, you know, very much a response to Narnia and a response to Harry Potter. But yeah, there's books in there that are in some ways much more, uh, I felt were much closer to what I was trying to do. And Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke is definitely one of them. I got my hands on that book in May 2004. It is not a coincidence that I started The Magicians in June 2004. I, I read that book and I thought, wow, that is, this is what it's like. For me, this is what is going on in the contemporary novel right now. Books like this, and I want to sit down and see if I tried to write one, what it would look like. Uh, it's this just magnificent book about, about the sort of rivalry between two wizards in the Napoleonic period. It's just amazing. Uh, it's, it's, just a, it's just a tour de force. So yeah, that was a big influence on me, a big influence on me. Um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. The, uh, the, this was, again, about, about bringing kind of fantastical beings to America and seeing what they look like on American stories, uh, American soil, sort of telling these stories, and, they, and the story comes out different when it's in America than when it's in the old world. Old world. Seeing um, Gaiman do that really opened up a lot of possibilities for me. Same with Philip Pullman. Uh, Pullman, in a much less explicit way, you know, there's little bits in there where he's responding to C.S. Lewis. He's kind of jousting a little bit with C.S. Lewis. He hates C.S. Lewis, hates <laughs> I met him once, we had breakfast together, and I was like, I want to talk about C.S. Lewis with this guy, but I know he hates C.S. Lewis. But you know what? It's eight, like eight in the morning. How angry can he get at C.S. Lewis <laughs> at eight in the morning? He was like, you turned purple. Like, it's crazy. He really has a lot of anger against C.S. Lewis, which, you know, I guess I do too, but it's sort of tempered maybe with a little bit more love as well. Um, those are big for me. Uh, Fritz Leiber. I wanted to do Fritz Leiber in a I, sort of, I was picking books for a, a a, lo a local bookstore book group, and I said, Fritz Leiber, Swords and Deviltry. Uh, Swords Against Deviltry? No, I can't even remember which is. Uh, let's, let's do that, Fafford and the Grey Mouser. These books were, for me, when I was growing up, bigger than Tolkien. I spent so much time in Nuon. Uh, it's about these two swordsmen. One of them is like sort of seven feet tall, northern barbarian. The other one is this kind of little sophisticated sort of fighter thief kind of guy with a rapier called the Grey Mouser. It's incredible. They're so good. He was so literate. My vocabulary alone just got massively expanded from reading Fritz Leiber. Fritz Leiber's out of print. I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. Um, but uh, the Faffer and the Grey Mouser books and, and, and Swords and Deviltry, that's what I'm going with for the title. It's got swords and deviltry in it. Uh, that was the first one. T.H. White, Once in Future King. I mean, that's not even an influence. I'm just trying to do the same thing as T.H. White did. Uh, I'm trying to read, you know, he, he retold the King Arthur story but as a kind of modern novel using sort of the techniques of realism. I mean, I've read, I've read that book more times than any other book in the English language. Uh, and then there's a whole raft of, of, of sort of non-fantasy stuff. Uh, I was a, a literature major in college. I went to grad school in Complet. Um, and I ended up reading a lot, a lot, a lot in the history of the novel. Um, and a lot of that makes its way into the books. Um, probably most explicitly is Brides That Are Visited by Evelyn Waugh, uh, which is a book about people who go to college, they go to Oxford in the 20s, um, and then they graduate, and life just wrecks them. You know, they go from this wonderful academic idyll to this just very dark, difficult future. Uh, and that's the story of the magicians. People say, you know, Break bills is just like Hogwarts. It's not like Hogwarts. It's like Oxford. It's like Oxford in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, Brian said, you know, as much as any of those other books has been a, has been a big influence on me. This question asker inquires if Grossman has always had an ending in mind for the series. 
I wish, I wish that I could say that I did. I could say that, and no one could ever prove me wrong, but I didn't. I really didn't, and, and uh, J.K. Rowling did, and, and I just, it's so stunning to me. When I set out to write a book, I'm a big planner, and I plan the book very minutely, but I never thought about the next book when I was working on a book. When I was writing The Magicians, as I said before, it was kind of a professional, I was in a professional kind of, I was kind of stuck, and I didn't really feel like, is this book ever going to be published? What am I doing? There was a lot of kind of self-esteem, self-confidence problems happening. And uh, I didn't even th I think about writing another book after that. Because I, 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 the idea that The Magicians itself would be published seemed so preposterous that I, I couldn't even go on and think about, about, uh, about ne fur further books. So well, I didn't even think about Magician King until after Magicians was published. Uh, and then I just I improvised them. And I think also, you know, I wanted to feel as though each book was really necessary and I would just stop if there wasn't one that came next. But, you know, there's this sort of little demon in your mind saying, well, but what happened next? What if it, even after the book ends, what happened next? And I kept, that demon kept sort of running on this little gerbil wheel. Uh, and, I, and I started thinking more about it. And, you know, the, the stories just came to me. And, the, you know, the Narnia books were a guide for me. They were a little bit of a template. The Magician King sits very lightly on top of uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, Magician's Land draws a lot from Magician's Nephew, which is sort of the creation story of Narnia and the last battle, which is the story of its destruction. Those were useful, they were useful templates. But I didn't, I didn't plan. And I actually feel like the books gained something a little bit from that improvisational quality. Certainly there was never a thing where I was like, you know, I'm gonna say, this, this is a nice set piece, but I'm gonna save it for the last book. You know, when I was writing a book, I put everything I could think of into that book, which I think is a good practice for people writing series. Um, just don't, don't save anything. Another audience member asked if it was difficult to write the transition of power between Raynor the Fox and Julia in The Magician King. Well, it was definitely difficult to write. I'm never going to write a scene like that ever again, I don't think. You know, the, the, the principle that I tried to, to abide by in The Magician's books was I really tried to work out what I thought would happen. Stick to it. I wanted these books to obey the laws of realism. And uh, when it came to that point, you know, there's a very extensive tradition of sexual violence between gods and mortals in mythology. I thought I could, I, I could, I could not write it that way. Um, and, you know, it's in, the, in mythology, it's presented in this very sort of normative way. It's all good fun. Uh, and I, I thought, well, I could, I, I could skip this. I could just sort of skate over it, um, and no one probably would ever call me on it. Uh, but I wouldn't really believe it. Um, I felt as though that, that was, that's, that, that's what would have happened. And in the end, I, you know, I did write it that way, and it's another aspect of the book, so it's, it's very divisive. But I just felt like sexual violence is real, and, and, and I could write as if it's not and sort of stick my head in the sand, or I could write it the way I thought that I think it would happen, with all the horror and all the emotions and, and the terrible consequences that go with it. Yeah, it was a difficult scene to write. Never again. The next question is regarding the fiction and metafiction that Grossman juggles in his books. One of the most formative reading experiences of my life was reading Watchmen, um, which, because I'm super old, I read when I was in high school. Uh, and that's a, a, another you know, huge model for the, for the magicians. And, the, and Watchmen, uh, if you haven't read it, it's a comic book uh, by uh, Alan Moore, and who's the artist, David Gibbons, is that right? Yeah. And it, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a story about superheroes. But it tells it, 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 it it's, it's also like a brutal attack on, on, on all of superhero mythology and just 
chops away at you know, what we think of as the foundational assumptions of what superhero, the, what, what, of who superheroes are, why they do what they do, how it affects them, how it affects them personally, what they're like when they don't have their tights on. The funny thing was, as a result, he conducted this just frontal attack on, superhero, on the superhero story, and, and, and as a result, he wrote the greatest superhero story that had ever been written. And that was a lesson that was not lost on me, which is that if you, if you attack a genre, if you attack its most sacred assumptions, uh, it gets stronger, it doesn't get weaker. So, you know, I, I really tried to approach the magicians, all the magicians' books from that point of view, and to some extent, that, um, that kind of meta-critique uh, is, it's, it's a bit, it's, it's, it's baked in in a lot of ways. I mean, structurally, you know, fantasy, writing fantasy, there's a lot of conventions at work. You know, there's a lot of assumptions about what's going to happen and how things are going to work. It's almost like you're, it's, it's, you're not really sort of assembling it atom by atom. You've got these big, leg, not even Lego blocks, Duplo blocks. <laughs> dealing with Duplo blocks, and you're sort of fitting them together. Here's the bit where they go to the underworld. You know, here's the bit where he finds his father's sword. Um, and I, you know, I felt as though when I, each time I came for one of those, I thought, you know, does it, is this, is this how the story plays to me, or should I try to do something with this trope or with this convention? Um, so a lot of it is structural. A lot of the meta stuff um, is, is, is baked pretty deeply in. And then, you know, there's Josh making Venture Brothers references, and that's just sort of spr <laughs> sprinkled on top. Um, but you know, it's really it's all the meta stuff is um, it's 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 fundamental to, to what I was trying to do. The next question asker wonders about some of the character names, in particular Plum. Um, as with many of my uh, my characters, they uh, are named using um, discarded names that I wanted to give my children, but my wife wouldn't sign off on. <laughs> so I always liked the name Plum, uh, and uh, we couldn't make it stick. Plum is also the name of nobody I know. I always worry that if I use the name of someone who's a good friend of mine, that that friend will somehow get mixed up in the character and it'll all be very confused. So I, 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 I like the name a lot, and uh, I have no children named that. Although, oddly enough, after I introduced a character in The Magician King named Benedict, and then killed that character, tragically, I then went on and named my son Benedict. So, we're gonna, we'll, we'll, he and I will have to have a talk about that you know, a little bit later on. But, there, you know, there isn't much meaning in, in the names in, in the magician's books. Quentin Compson in, in, in Sound and the Fury was not miles away from my consciousness when I chose that name. Um, but also, it's just a name, it doesn't get used very much. Alice, obviously, when, in a fantasy context, Alice is a very loaded, charged name. Um, but, you know, there isn't, there isn't a ton uh, of, of, of meaning sort of I don't really play that particular game where I, where I think about the character names too much. Poppy, why is she named Poppy? Because I like the name Poppy and didn't have enough daughters. Another audience member mentions that Janet, a bit character in Grossman's first book, was his favorite. Why, as the series progressed, did he decide to elevate Janet's importance and make her a point-of-view character? Right, no, why did I do that? I, 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 didn't, I didn't think I realized that until I got to the end that I'd written a novel about Janet, who was a relatively, well, you know, she's sort of, sort of third lead, fourth lead kind of character in The Magicians. It's, you know, it's, it's something I'd... Promoting Julia from being a supernumerary in The Magicians to a, a main character and a point-of-view character in The Magician King, that was an important lesson for me. I felt, like, really happy about how it came out. I don't think that I had, had even had that much confidence that I could write from a woman's point of view. <clears throat> and Julia surprised me. She was, I only meant to write a, a, a chapter from her point of view, but then it just came sort of spilling out. Uh, and then, yeah, I started writing from, from Janet's point of view in Magician's Land. I'm very fond of Janet. Janet is my favorite character. There I said it. 
Uh, and I think it's partly because uh, I'm a very mean, bitchy person myself, but I never say it. I never say any of that stuff. <laughs> Janet, she doesn't edit herself. You know, it all, I, she's really my hero, and uh, I sort of wish I could be more like her, but I just can't do it. So I, you know, I really enjoy writing for Point of View. She's very acerbic. Um, she doesn't take any shit from anybody, and she gives shit to everybody. Um, you know, she's very good at taking other characters down a peg, which is a useful quality. Um, she's very unsentimental. Um, so when she does have feelings, when she does kind of overflow with feeling, uh, you know, you know that, that, that something really serious is going down. Yeah, it's a good question. I was going to, this is okay, a terrible thing I'm going to say. Nobody, nobody tweet this. Um, she was supposed to die in The Magicians. She was meant to be killed off. Uh, and for most, dra most of the drafts, she did die. And the problem with that, as it turns out, was that although I was very fond of Janet and I was just like, floods of tears, Janet is dead. I can't believe it. People who read the drafts, they weren't that sad that she was dead. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh my god, you killed Janet, you bastard. It was like, thank god she's gone. <laughs> please, I know you could probably resurrect her. Don't, please don't. I, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't getting the reaction that I needed. And also, I, was, I wanted to spite the people who didn't like her, because I liked her so much. So I, I let her live. And yeah, I, you know, I just, I just, I just I liked writing from her point of view. And you know, she, she, she's very smart, um, and she sort of really tells it like it is. And sometimes it's just useful to have someone like that watching the action, because they're not gonna, the reader knows that they're not gonna bullshit them. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wanting a little more explanation about Quentin and how he works as a character. Quentin, at the beginning of The Magicians, he's not a very empathic person. Uh, and it's not because he's a bad person, it's because he's a depressed person. Uh, and I have a little experience with depression. Uh, and I, one of the reasons I wrote Quentin the way I did was because I was so struggling with similar problems. Uh, and one of the things that happens when you're depressed is that even though you feel like crap about yourself, yourself is the only thing you can think about. You just, you don't have, you're, 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 all your resources are getting used up, desperately trying to meet your own needs, which are, which are not getting mad at all, and you're feeling really bad. But uh, one of the things that falls away is, is a lot of empathy for other people. Um, you kind of forget that other people are, uh, are, are, are struggling too. And it's something that Quentin has to learn to remember. Uh, and it's, it's a lesson that, that, that comes slowly to him, to the uh, agony and irritation of book groups everywhere. Um, uh, it's one of the main things uh, I think that he has to learn. Um, and the funny thing that he learns is that um, when he stops focusing on himself so much, when he stops saying, I'm so depressed, I feel so bad, uh, you know, uh, I desperately need all these things and I'm not getting them. Weirdly enough, when he starts to help other people and give his power to other people, he himself gets more powerful. The stories are about, the, you know, this is the arc of the books is about someone who feels powerless going to someone, going to feeling powerful. Um, and power doesn't come from where he thinks it's going to come from. He thinks power is going to come from keeping everything to himself. Power comes from giving things away, as it turns out. Thank you. Well, that's it from our Ramsey County Library event with Lev Grossman. Catch our next Club Book events with Amy Bloom at Dakota County Library on Thursday, August 14th, 2014 at 7 p.m. And on Saturday, August 30th at 2 p.m., Scott County Library hosts Louise Penny. Meet Bloom and Penny, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. 
If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.